What is the number one rule? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. The number one rule for real estate is location, location, location. The number one rule for authors is write what you know. The number one rule of investing, don't lose money. The number one rule before you post something online, would you say it to that person's face? And the number one rule for surviving zombie land, cardio. To escape a pursuing zombie, you will need to outrun it. But if you were to ask Jesus, what is the number one rule for life? Well, what would he say? What is the single most important spiritual issue? Well, we don't have to guess. Um, we know the answer because Jesus was asked this question, and he answered it. In fact, he answered it twice. The second time he answers this question, it was the final week before his crucifixion. Jesus had gone to the temple, and, and it was there at the temple where some of his final conflicts with the religious leaders would take place. Now, kind of picture the temple grounds as kind of like social media today. It's where everyone debated politics. They argued the religious views. Right, so every group had their representatives, their believers, and their trolls uh, all at the temple trying to make sure that their viewpoint was represented and you know, to try to lure other people into a fight. Now, in Mark chapter 12, several of these groups take their stab at getting Jesus to say something stupid, right? Uh, something offensive that they could then turn around and use against him. It was first century cancel culture. If we can get Jesus to say something wrong now, then we can get him to shut up later. Now, the first to go um, are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees you may have heard a lot about. Uh, they are the super strict, legalistic, religious leaders. The Herodians, however, may be new to you. Now, they were a political rather than a religious faction. Um, they were strong supporters of the Herodian dynasty. Think King Herod here. They were very accepting of Greek and Roman culture and customs. So they weren't really that big on sticking to traditional Jewish customs. Now, under normal circumstances, um, the Pharisees, who were devoutly religious and traditional, um, and the Herodians were bitter enemies. Uh, but as they say, politics makes strange bedfellows. So they team up here uh, against Jesus to question him about paying taxes to Caesar. Now, here's the trap that they have set for Jesus. If he answers, no, it isn't right, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar, he pleases the Pharisees. He'll make the Jews happy. Um, but then he ticks off the Herodians and the civil authorities. If he answers, yes, we should be paying our taxes to Caesar, he angers the religious conservatives um, and ingratiates himself to the hated Romans. 
right? So either way, it stirs up trouble for Jesus. It's a classic no-win scenario, and that's exactly what both groups want. Now, next, it's the Sadducees who want to tee off against Jesus. Um, the Sadducees are in many ways um, kind of a rival uh, group to the Pharisees. Um, a lot of priests uh, came from the Sadducees. Uh, but mostly the Sadducees came from the wealthy upper crust of Jewish society. Um, they were more interested in guarding their economic status than they were religious and moral purity and truth. They were the religious liberals of their day. And like religious liberals today, um, they believed in everything and nothing at the same time. Now, they rejected most of the Old Covenant. They didn't believe in angels or the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. Now, keep that in mind when you consider the question they asked Jesus. Because they asked him what amounts to a trick question about a woman who marries a man only for him to die and leave her a widow. So then she marries one of her late husband's brothers, but then he dies, right? And this happens five more times with five more brothers, each uh, in turn, each one dying, leaving her a grieving widow. So in the afterlife, which the Sadducees don't believe in, uh, but they wanna know, whose wife will she be? Right, this is one of those theoretical, theological conundrums designed to be impossible to, to disentangle. But Jesus, being the Son of God, is able to cut through the, the proverbial Gordian knot with panache. And he dispenses with each question with the divine wisdom that leaves each group of inquirers befuddled and silent. So the next to step up to the pitcher's mound and hurl questions high and inside at Jesus is a scribe, right? Think of, of quill and paper here. Scribes were experts in the law of Moses. They were religious lawyers. They knew the old covenant forwards and backwards they knew the dotting of every I and, and the crossing of every T. Uh, they're the experts that everyone else went to in order to win their arguments. Now, Mark 12, 28 says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing, talking about Jesus and the Sadducees here. Um, heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answers them well, all right, at this point, the scribe thinks that, well, he can do better than the Sadducees. So he winds up and he flings this fastball at Jesus. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, according to the scribe's count, there were 613 commandments, to be precise, in the Mosaic Law. Uh, there were 365 prohibitions. These are the you shall not, the things they weren't supposed to do. And there were 248 
positive commands. You shall do these things. Moreover, the scribes distinguished between what they called heavy or weighty commands and light commands. Now, these light commands were, were less demanding. They had less serious penalties attached to them. But the weighty commands, all right, these were the uncompromising essentials. These were the serious commandments, and they had the most serious penalties. So the scribe's question here basically is this. Out of these 613 commandments in the Old Testament law, which one of them is the weightiest, the heaviest of them all? All right. Out of all these do's and don'ts, which one's the most important? In God's eyes, what is rule number one? Now, Jesus has a ready answer. Here's what we read in verses 29 and 31. And, and these three verses are the first part of our core verse this week. Our core verse this week is actually uh, four verses. Um, and it begins with this. Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind and with all your strength. Now the scribe or any of the Jews around the temple courts on that day would have immediately recognized these words. Because Jesus is quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Um, what they knew as the Shema, which simply is the Hebrew word for hear, as in, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For them, it, it, it's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Uh, in Hebrew football games, every time a field goal or an extra point is kicked, there's a Jewish guy that stands up with a banner that says Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 on it. Every devout Jew would quote these verses twice a day. These are the verses that the very religious would, would write on, on tiny little scrolls and literally would tie them to their wrists uh, and their foreheads. They would attach these little scrolls like fortune cookies to their door frames. It was called a mezuzah. It was a little box with a tiny scroll with the Shema written on it, and, and it would be attached to their door frame. To this day, if you travel to Israel and stay in a hotel room, you will find the box with the Shema on the outside of the door to your room. Now, you can take this whole command and boil it down to two words, love God. Now, the Shema says that we should do this by loving God with, with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. Now, there are some Bible teachers that get very analytical with this, and so, you know, they try to break these four things down to to loving God with your emotions or your feelings, to loving God with your spirit, with your intellect, and with your will. And that sounds really nice, and it makes for a great four-point sermon outline. The problem is that, that the Hebrew, 
in terms of Deuteronomy or the Greek in terms of, of Mark chapter 12 here don't really break down that easily into our modern Western, you know, categories. Um, now, I've mentioned before uh, how in Jewish culture, when they wanted to emphasize something, they would repeat it. And, and a lot of times you would repeat it in different ways to make a point. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. And then the more you repeat something, the more important it is. And, and what's going on here is that it is saying in four different ways, love God with everything you've got. Love him with all you got. Don't hold anything back. And that's what this is saying. Now, I love compartments, right? Compartments are handy. Uh, with compartments, I can organize and understand. I can put away and retrieve. With compartments, everything has its place and purpose, right? So when I don't need it, everything has its place. When I do need it, I know right where I can find it. And so I've got compartments for my little screws and my nuts and my bolts and my washers. I've got compartments for my old computer parts. I've got compartments for my bicycle parts. I've got compartments for my gun parts. Um, I even use a cloud app that gives me compartments for my ideas and my, my sermon illustrations. Um, marriage counselors tell us and tell me that as a man, my brain is made up of little compartments. Mark Gunger in his Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage series says that, that men have a box in their brain for everything. There's a box for work. There's a box for their wife. There's a box for their mother-in-law, a box for their friends, a box for their hobbies. You know, and the rule is that these little boxes never touch. We only want to deal with one box at a time. We deal with what's in that box, and then we put it away. We don't want two boxes open at the same time. But there's one thing that you can't put in a box, and that's God, right? We can't put God in his own little compartment and keep him there for when we need him, you know, but most days we don't need him, so we just put him up on a shelf for later. I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 12. He is saying that your whole life is the God compartment, right? Uh, there is no area of your life that is not of interest to God. You are to love God with every box in your brain. You love him with every area of your life. There is no day of the week, no hour on the clock, no month on the calendar where God does not deserve anything less than your deepest and most devoted love. Mark 12.30 doesn't say, Love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, except during summer or except during Christmas season or except during football, soccer, or baseball season or except during hunting season. All right? There's no exceptions. Love God with everything. Love God with all that you have and all that you are. 
So at this point, Jesus has answered the scribe's question, what is the greatest commandment? Love God. Right? It's as simple as that, love God. But Jesus, he doesn't stop there, all right? It's, it's like BOGO day for Q&A with Jesus. Jesus throws in two for the price of one. And so Mark 12, 31, and this is the last of our, our core verses this morning, says this, the second is like it, the second greatest commandment. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. See, here's the surprise. There isn't one greatest commandment. There are two. Love God and love people. What does God want from you more than anything else? Love God and love people. What is essential that we get, even if we, we miss the other stuff? Love God and love people. And, and Jesus gives us a two-for-one here because one automatically leads to the other. All right, see, our love for God releases the love of God. Um, John writes in 1 John 4, 11, 19, uh, 4, 11, and then later on in verses 19 and 20, he says this, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. They're the love of God leading to the love of people. And then he explains later, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God yet hates his brother, he is a liar. All right, so love for God and love for people go hand in hand. They're inseparable. One leads to the other. Love God and love people. Now, you can accept both of these things. You can reject both of these things. What you cannot do is separate them and pick one, but not the other. Right? You can't love God, but you're not going to love people. And you can't say, well, I love God, and then turn around and, and say that you despise those that he loves. And, and you can't say, oh, I love people, but I don't care about God. Right? That, that will break down. I'll explain more about that later. We must love others because we love God, and God loves people. We demonstrate our love for God by loving those he loves. It is the height of hypocrisy to say, I love God, but I, I, I can't stand people. I love him, but I can't, I can do without them. Think about this. You will never meet another person that God does not love with all of his heart. You will never meet another person that Jesus did not die on the cross to save. You will never meet another person that Jesus does not love as a brother or a sister and longs for them to share his home in heaven with them. You can't love people but not love God, right? He's how we know what love looks like. Loving people without loving God is like trying to put a puzzle together without having the picture on the box. A lot of people think they're loving. A lot of people try to love without God, but we're just making it up as we go along. We're just going by feelings. We're groping about in the dark. The love of God shows us how to love. 
Now, I want to clarify uh, one important thing here. Both love God and love people. They're great commandments. They are essential commandments. But we have to remember that loving God is the greatest commandment. It must come first. Loving people comes second. When we switch these two things around, we make, and we make loving God secondary to loving people, all right, that's when we get all sorts of twisted in our morality. When doing what people want is more important than doing what God wants, we'll end up doing what God hates every time. Love for God must come first. His holiness, his truth, his righteousness, his word. All right, those are the, the compass points that show us the true north for loving people. You see, love drives you to do what the other person desires. Right? Well, God always desires the right thing. So loving him first will never steer you to do the wrong thing. But people's desires, right, they are all sorts of messed up. So if you make fulfilling their desire the most important thing, that will take you down all sorts of wrong roads. Um, if what God wants comes first, then what he wants comes first, not what other people want. So loving people within the context of loving God means that we'll always be willing to provide them what they really need without enabling their most sinful and destructive desires. Um, take the addict, right? If you put love for people first, then you're going to want to enable their habit, right? They'll always be borrowing money from you. You'll be paying for the necessity so they can get another bottle, another pill, and they will look at you with tears in their eyes. If you really love me, you will do this. And if you put loving people before loving God, um, the people will want you to look the other way when they want to do something harmful or hurtful or destructive. Oh, just cover for me. It's no big deal. If you really love me, you'll do it. All right? And this is how, when we put the love for people first, it steers us down the wrong path. It's this concept, though, of loving people first that the world loves to throw back into Christianity's face. They'll say, well, you love people or you claim to love people, but then you try to force your standards of right and wrong on them. You say you love people, but then you judge what they do. If you really love people, you will let them do what you want. What do you care? That's what the world says. And they see things this way because loving God isn't a part of the equation at all. Right? Loving uh, people uh, for them is not only the greatest commandment, it's the only commandment. And so that means letting people do whatever they want. And if loving people is the greatest commandment, then if they want to sleep around with whomever they want, that's perfectly fine. If they want to marry someone of the same sex, what does it matter to me? If they want to marry themselves or a dolphin or a roller coaster, who am I 
to say anything about it. After all, I'm only supposed to love them, so I should let them love whomever or whatever they want, right? That's the argument uh, taking place in our world today. Now, and I'm not making any of this up. All right, there are real people who married all of those things. Now, I don't know why anyone would want to marry a roller coaster. I mean, a real human relationship has enough ups and downs already. But you see, once we decide that what God wants doesn't matter, we've opened the door to anything goes. Right? There's no stopping it. There's no going back. Now, as a follower of Jesus, though, what God wants must always come first. Now, this doesn't mean that I want to judge my neighbor, right? That's not my job. That's God's job. It doesn't mean that, that I'm going to try to, to force my morality on them. Um, my job is to show them Jesus. All right? It's Jesus' job to, to change them. My job isn't to make them obey. It doesn't mean that I'm going to treat my neighbor in, in, in any way that is, that is uh, hateful, harmful, abusive, or in any way less than loving. Right? I may be tolerant of their choices in the classic definition. That is, enduring behavior and opinions that I may disapprove of, that I may disagree with. But since I love God first and foremost, I can never accept, approve, or applaud anything that goes against what God wants. Now, my love for God and my love for them means that I want for them what God wants for them. It means that I love them enough that I don't want them to go to hell. It means that I love them enough that I, I want them to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It means that I love them enough to, to tell them the truth and speak the truth, even if it's uncomfortable. Now, not in any way that, that is rude or forceful, but I will continue to love them even if they don't agree with me, and even if they don't follow Jesus. Well, let me be very clear. God wants us to love others, but it's a love that must come out of our love for God. Our love for others never supersedes our love and obedience to God. I love what John Bloom writes. He says, the most loving thing we can do for others is love God more than we love them. Let me say that again. The most loving thing we can do for others is love God more than we love them. We love others best when we love God most. Now, if you're not a Christian, I know that sounds preposterous. You might even have a hard time swallowing that as a believer. But it's true. When we love Jesus first, there is a, a depth of love and grace that flows inexplicably from our lives. We find a supernatural ability to deny self and put others first. But the biggest reason, though, that we love others best when we love God most is that love, in its purest and truest form, comes from God. 
Because as the scriptures say, God is love. So when we love God first, we will love others according to the highest definition of love possible. Love God and love people. Uh, there's a reason why Jesus says that there are no other commandments greater than these. In Matthew's record of this encounter, he quotes Jesus as saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right? Jesus is saying every commandment can be boiled down to one of these two things. It helps you love God or love people. Right? Every do, every don't, every rule, every commandment is designed to help you do either of those two things, to love God more or to love people more. Christian morality is very simple, really. In every decision and in every action, in every word, ask yourself two questions. Number one, does this show my love for God? And number two, does this show my love for people? If the answer is, is yes, um, then that's the right thing to do. But if the answer is no, then it's not the right thing to do. That's Christian morality in a nutshell. Um, and that's what this is all about. So consider this your challenge to love God and love people. That's basically... The only two commandments in Scripture, it all comes down to that. Thank you, and God bless.